Welcome to what is still the third wheel. We are going to be talking about our read-through of The Way of Kings. We're going to be talking about chapters 7 through 14, with some interludes in the middle. I am the person who has read these books before. I'm Jesse, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. I'm Tyler. I have not read all of these books before, but I have read more of these books than chapters 7 through 14, with some interludes in the middle. I'm on chapter... What did I just say? 22. I'm going ahead. Very slightly ahead. And I'm Bjorn, and I just read chapters 7 through 14 and the interludes, and nothing else. The freshest take, because I read this in an hour. Just now? Just now. Great. The hour before recording. Finished reading at 6.56pm. I mean, I'll say that reading 130 pages of this is a lot easier than reading 130 pages of The Wheel of Time. It is not difficult to read that amount in, like, a couple hours in this series. It's not as wordy. It's not something you have to, like... It's not as fibrous to chew through while reading. Wow. Wheel of Time feels very fibrous. It's not as gamey. It's, it's not as gamey and fibrous to chew through. But at the same time, all the capital capital proper nouns make, make it a little troublesome. Yeah, I, I'd say there's probably more proper nouns in this series than in Wheel of Time. And sometimes there's a problem where there's words that seem like capital letters belong, but then there aren't any capital letters. But we'll get to that. I think I specifically have it highlighted. Are you talking about the thrill? No. The thrill is capitalized. So, where we left off, uh, we have a couple chapters at the start of this section wrapping up Shalon's beginning of her story. So, chapter 7 is called Anything Reasonable, and we pick up with Shalon trying to figure out what her next step is to try and get Yasna Kolin to reconsider. Before we go ahead and jump into... Because we're going from Kaladin to Shallan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we're going to have other points of view. Uh, I know you wanted to keep the Wheel of Time comparisons to a minimum, but I had one that jumped out at me right in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So here's a sort of meta-textual thing that I prefer how Jordan does it. So when he finishes writing a character's point of view, and then we move on to the next one, I'm not sad because I didn't want to read the previous one anyway, but Sanderson makes me sad because I wanted to keep reading about the previous character. So reading Sanderson's books makes me sad because they're better. And and as we all know, having emotions when you consume media means that it's bad. I mean, Jordan tends to write his perspectives in big chunks, while Brandon Sanderson will like swap back and forth pretty much every chapter. Yes, I... Did actually, on a serious note, want to say that I don't remember how long Shalon's point of view goes in here, but I think up to the point that I'm at, like, that's the last time we see her. Yeah, she is absent from book two of this book. Okay. I'm... Is she learning? Yeah. So, I mean, we leave off at the end of book one with her being accepted as Yasna's ward, and then we sort of, when we get to part three, book three, it sort of time skips ahead and she's been a student for a little bit. So she's just off-screen learning. Yeah. So essentially, uh, Dalinar and Adel- Adolin. Adolin, Adolin. I think the technically correct pronunciation is Adolin. They sort That's of take, silly. Sh- they take Shallan's place as point of view characters in part two. And so this is sort of a, don't get it twisted. This is like a Lord of the Rings, secretly six books. Yeah. Stormlight is secretly nine books. Yeah, I mean... 
Oh, wait, no. Even the book calls them parts, not books. Never mind. Okay. I don't know what I was thinking of. That's fine. Anyways, so we get little bits. We get a lot of Shalon just thinking to herself in this chapter. Um, we get a couple details about exactly what she's trying to do and why. That there is a Fabriel that her father had that was damaged in the night that her father died. That is very similar to the one Yasna has. So eventually, Shalon makes it to the Palineum, which is this massive library in Carbranth, and is unable to enter because she's not that rich. So she decides to wait for Yasna in her personal reading nook. And just as a note for me, I feel like the logic and movement of Shalon's scenes in this reading section feels really clear. Like, it yes. feels like it moves from one thing to another for a reason, and I understand where they are and why characters are acting the way they're acting. It just feels very clear to me. Yeah, continuing my, from last section, like, comparison between Stormlight, Wheel of Time, and Ward, reading all three back-to-back -back and in sometimes going from at work reading Ward, stepping out of the room reading Stormlight for an hour, and then going back to read Ward, it's, like, extremely clear the movement that Sanderson writes for his characters. Uh, mm -hmm. There are times in both Wheel of Time and Ward just in the past week that I've been reading where, like, someone will do something and I just start to zone out and go <laughs> fully glazed and, like, scroll down to the next thing that happens instead of movement because it just stops making sense. But Shalon, I was pretty easily able to track where she was at any point in time. I don't know why exactly that stuck out to me, but... I guess we got the same sort of feel. Yeah. Probably because it was pleasing without feeling too heavy-handed. At least for myself, like, I was like, oh, this is nice. I know what's happening, and it's going like this. It doesn't feel like you're being force-fed the information. It feels just enough so you can visualize it and enjoy the story, as opposed to just being, like, confused because you don't know what's going on, or hunkered down because every single <laughs> book cover has been detailed for all the book covers within the history of leather binding. <laughs> yeah yeah it just feels like her chapters flow nicely here yeah another bit of internal monologuing uh reveals that shalon's recollection of the night of her father's death involves her holding a silvery sword sharp enough to cut stones as if they were water wow i totally missed that but that's really good to know yeah, I think I missed that on my first read as well. And that makes some things that come up later a lot more shocking if you miss that single line. Yeah, I... Yeah. That's really, really good to know. <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse. I mean, it is a really quick line. Um, Fair and enough. It, it's written in a way that specifically he doesn't use the word shard blade, so it almost feels like you're supposed to sort of skim over it in your mind and not really understand what it's trying to say. I will also say it may have been that I read that line, but then later on, characters with shard blades, whose point of views we get, uh, Dalinar and definitely not pronounced Adolin, like specifically describe shard blades as being sharp enough to cut rock, and then specifically describe the act of cutting rock as a use of a shard blade. Like, mm. he hits it enough times in different phrasings that now that you say that, it's like, oh, there's only one thing he could be talking about, but mm. I can easily see how back in Chapter 7, before we got any of that information, it could have just gone through my head. Because at that point, the only shard blade stuff we have is um, uh, Zesty. Yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, it's in there, but I feel like a lot of people miss it on their first read, which is interesting and probably intentional. Maybe I shouldn't have even brought it up, but... No, it's a good thing to bring up because I didn't recall that either. I just remember thinking, wow, that death seems super suspicious. <laughs> it's very suspicious. It's just extremely suspicious. Um, so I appreciate you bringing it up because I was just kind of focused on, I wonder what plot happened like like mysterious murder plot not like the story arc plot happened the second book is a lot about how freaky suspicious it is so in yasna's personal study cubby uh shallan begins sketching and this is the first time that we see sort of the interaction between shallan's photographic memory and her drawing ability it's super cool yeah she's essentially a human xerox yeah uh, so there were two things I wanted to talk about in here. Um, one of them is that she is describing, like, the feeling of pulling it out of her mind mm-hmm. as collecting a capitalized memory of, and that makes me real spooked about whatever those chapter headers are. I know that they change in book two to, like, a letter or something. Uh-huh. Uh, but in chapter, or in uh, part one, they're all like memories collected from and i haven't gone back to check and see if the word memory is capitalized but it's big spooks that we're suddenly talking about memories and capitalized um and then yes i'm sure beyond also has a lot to say about the spread but it's funny that we talked so much about it last time and then the literally the first chapter of this section basically like answers every question we had not all of them i kind of have more questions about spread now there's always there's always going to be more questions about spren because fantastic. There's so many types of spren, and then later chapters there's rot spren and destruction spren and death spren. Actually, that is a good life point. spren. So are there sprens that have yet to be discovered because people just aren't triggering them to flood to them? Are Probably. spren related to? Are they a completely different entity? Or are they symbiotic with humans? Because there's a whole thing with Sil being in a super evolved spren that's very bizarre and spooky. <laughs> and then just makes me think of like spren that just constantly exists around. It made me think of all the spren that could exist because I because because we didn't get introduced to rot spren until later chapters. And so when I was still thinking about the spren with the uh, artist Shalon, I was like, does that mean there's like mental health spren or like liver spren? So liver like, liver spren as the in earth. Like- Bren. Yeah, like if you're eating liver and you're like, mmm, tasty liver. You know, or 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 kind of like with, within medicine, the concept of the liver and its role on the body. Like, are there infinite spren for all potential thoughts, ideas? Or is so, it... Just, so, <laughs> if you think about, we see, we've seen a lot of sprens about emotion. And the things about spren in the natural world are spren of forces. Like, you don't see grass spren or tree spren you see wind spren or fire spren and stuff like that so think of things that are active livers are active oh no i might have just figured out more cosmere stuff so stuff that involves forces whether they be like emotional or physical have spren Uh, i'm gonna have to not dive into the wiki this is gonna be tough it's one of those things where you're like, did I just crack the case wide open? I don't know. You tell us. Wazowski. <laughs> Turn in your badge <laughs> and spread. 
your gun spren. <laughs> Turning your gun spren and your bad spren. You're a loose spren cannon spren. <laughs> Anyways. Take uh, your talking- sprinkles and leave. Anyways, we're talking about this because Shallan uh, draws creation spren while having a very transcendent creative moment while drawing. So she's not just like a human printer. She has a very human connection to the sensation of drawing. Yeah, it like almost takes her over Mm -hmm. while she's doing it. So like the mechanics are very nearly mechanical, but she feels very deeply about doing it. Yeah. I think there's words used like ligaments and sinews and all that. And um, Sorry, what? Did I pronounce it wrong? Yeah, it's pronounced sinew. Sinew. I'm sorry. Sometimes I read words very strange. Like Reese's. That's how it's pronounced. Reese's. Technically, it's Reese's. Yeah. It can be either. Reese's. Other words. I'm sorry. (laughs) You're going to leave this in just to make me sound silly. Maybe. We'll see. But I, I really liked it, how it gave that kind of raw feeling, the, the, the visceral guts of um, creating. I thought that was very cool. Yeah, you can tell this isn't just nothing to her. It's not just something she does for no reason. She feels very deeply about it. Yeah. So after... Uh, oh, sorry, ahead. I had a question about the mechanics of Spren, and you can stop me if this is a spoiler. Sure. But later on... Uh, Kaladin is treating people in his care uh, from Bridge 4, and they mention Rotspren in the, like, the way that he phrases it sounds like the Rotspren aren't just indicative of Rot, but are themselves causing or accelerating it. Is it possible for Spren to have, like, a feedback loop of you initiate something that summons Spren, and then because Spren are present, that thing becomes stronger? Possibly. Okay. Uh, I mean, we get some talk about, like, glory Spren later, and I could see a situation where you draw a glory Spren and sort of makes you realize how good you're feeling, and it draws more. Like, I don't think it's impossible. You, like, get hyped off of how many <laughs> yeah, glory like, Spren there are? Yeah. Um, but I mean, frickin' Elokar draws Glory Spren because his uncle lets him win in a race, so I guess yeah. it doesn't take much. Uh, Elokar's pathetic, we'll get to it. Yeah, Hype Spren, please. <laughs> hype Spren, I prefer that. Um, so after sketching Carbranth and Yalb, Shallan treats those as a warm-up and then draws her masterpiece, which is a drawing of Yasna turning that big boulder into smoke. She then writes a very wordy letter to Yasna that she's planning on leaving in the alcove. Mm -hmm. And while it is wordy and academic and serves the purpose of her trying to become Yasna's ward, it does feel like... So right after she writes it, Shallan thinks, still, it seemed the right thing to do. For all the fact that this letter was a lie, a lie built of truths, she hadn't truly come to partake of Yasna's knowledge. She had come as a thief. So for her, she's consciously writing this letter because she thinks, I need to become her ward so I can steal her uh, soul caster. But you can tell somewhere inside of her, she also actually wants to be her academic ward. So the dissonance starts really early. Yeah, I so I don't know enough about Shallan yet uh, to say whether this is true, but it almost feels like because Yasuna dismissed her so strongly, she's like, well, maybe now I 
do think that I'm good enough <laughs> to be trained by. I'll show you. That's very Shalon. Yeah, which seems very Shalon. Uh, and I will say, I liked this letter much more than the previous conversation that she and Shalon had. Something that I think we will talk about as we go on is how much those first six slash eight chapters were like super... I found them way less engaging than mm. these next few. These next few were like a complete 180 from my feelings on the previous ones. I mean, the last section was pretty much purely set up. Yeah. Um, yeah, my only point in that is like Shalana and Yasna pretty much have the same conversation again. Mm-hmm. Uh, except this time I am just way more into what's going on. I, I think that might have something to do with how the se- we both felt that the scenes were flowing better. Yeah. So it might have something to do with that. Um, so after Shalon writes that letter, a ardent enters the alcove and she and Brother Cavzal begin flirting relentlessly. Brother Cavs! Whoa. Also, also known as a hot priest from Fleabag. Yeah. <laughs> so, so sexy. Yeah, he's, he's got well. He's sexy caps. priest, yeah. uh, and he has the same sort of quick fire, no aim wit that Shalon tends to have. So they sort of just feed off of each other. Wait, it's I fun. Th- I thought wit was with Elokar. <laughs> There's a character <laughs> named Wit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really funny. You're so funny. Thank you. Almost as funny as Wit. Nah, but this interaction was cute. Yeah. So, I mean, you can tell that they're sort of scattershot and not, like, actually that clever, but they're just flirting so hard it sort of wins you over. They're both nerds. Yeah. Like, linguistics nerds. Shalon is my nerd daughter. Don't the ever also- talk to her or myself ever again. They also bond over how sick the Almighty is. Yeah, I love God. Can't get enough of him. Um, so Kabzal essentially says that he's on a campaign to try and convert Yasna away from atheism. So he's going to be around to talk to Yasna. Great. So this chapter ends with Yasna entering the nook. And mm-hmm. not and not looking pleased. And we start the next chapter, chapter eight, nearer the flame, uh, immediately as it starts. Chapter eight picks up right where we left off with Yasna being slightly peeved that Shalon is still there. She's also nearer the flame. <laughs> uh, I'm so angry. Um, so essentially, like we get a bunch of stuff of Shalon being dismissed and called back and dismissed and called back. Yeah, uh, you forgot all the crying. She, like, I think she actually specifically keeps herself from crying. Uh, wait, did she say crying or crime? Crying, not crime. There is a little bit of crime in this chapter. Well, uh, it's soft crime. Soft crime. But effectively, Shalon's drawings and her rhetorical letter convince Yasna to say that if she fills the gaps in her education she can apply to be her ward again and then she would accept her yeah which shalon then is like letter of the law not spirit yeah so at first she takes this as a defeat uh 
So she just sort of slinks off with her tail between her legs. She's proud that Yasna would want her eventually, but just being able to come back in a couple years doesn't solve her problem of her family all going to be dying. Yeah, she needs the Soulcaster now. So at this point, she considers it sort of done, but she'll talk to Yalb in a bit and Yalb. she'll change her mind. Um, we get a couple details about her family. Um, she says that Helleron, her oldest brother, had known more about her father's Soulcaster scheme, but he had vanished a year ago and her father had proclaimed him dead. Suspicious. Suspicious. I turned him into marble too. I don't know what you're referencing. Well, she talks about, like, isn't that how her family uh, kept getting money? Is he oh, kept well, not, t- like, not turning people into marble, but... Well, I mean, unless he mysteriously disappeared when he found out too much. That's a possibility. I don't know. Um, so Shalon leaves the palace and meets up with her buddy Yalb. And Yalb uh, has just finished cheating some guards out of their money. And we get a bit of a hint here about why gambling is a little taboo for Vorin cultures, because Vorin cultures have a taboo against uh, predicting the future, or even seeming to predict the future. So generally, gambling games in polite society have nothing to do with chance, which is a little strange. Yeah, and I won't talk about it now, but they do explain that in Mm -hmm. what will be the next section. So Yalb convinces her to take another shot, and Shalon decides she's going to go to a book merchant and literally fill the gaps in her knowledge while sitting passive-aggressively right next to Yasna. I love it. (laughs) I really love it. You go, girl. Get those books. Also, the interactions with the book merchant was interesting. Also, She is not street smart at all. No. Also, just the, uh, is- Is it racism to be against somebody's religion as well as what they look like? Because she she describes the uh, shop lady as she was brown eyes, but, you know, at at least she had some propriety to her. She she wore the glove and she presented herself well for being a brown eyes with the wrong religion. Well, uh, they're all the anyone who talks about having like a safe hand where like they cover, I think it's their left hand. Yeah. Those are mm-hmm. all Vorin people. Mm-hmm. So she would have no reason to discriminate her against discriminate against her on basis of religion. She would just discriminate against her because she has brown eyes. Uh, she's a filthy dark eyes. Please use the correct terminology. Careful now. Whoa. <laughs> um, Listen, who, which eye color is filthy changes depending on. The point of view character. Mm, I love eyeball racism. Also brings up the idea of genetics, because, I mean, brown eyes are more dominant, so... Uh, They talk about mixing light and dark eyes in a later chapter. Yeah. Thank you. In this world, if you mix, it's very apparent. You don't just end up somewhere in the middle. You'll, like, end up with black hair with, like, a couple streaks of blonde. Yeah, or... it, it's that yeah. thing that we learned about in genetics doesn't happen, where, like, uh-huh. it's not that both are... Sh- in real life, it's not that both are displayed. You uh-huh. get something in the middle. Like, in this, you literally end up with characters who have, like, zebra hair. Edgy. Yeah. And they talk about, uh, like... The way for a dark eyes to ascend, a dark eyes family to ascend to light eyes level is to mix with a low level light eyes and then hope that your children have light eyes. 
Yeah. And there are also levels of dark eyes and light eyes. When you were talking about this affluent bookseller lady, mm-hmm. uh, Shalon notes that she would probably be of the first or second non. Yeah. So which... even, even as a dark eyes, you can be wealthy enough or successful enough to be almost light eyes, even if you wouldn't be called like brightness or bright lord. Yeah. It's uh, like purchasing whiteness. Pretty much. Basically. Is is the term non supposed to be something that we picked up, or are we just supposed to infer that the higher uh, non is better? Because they talk about it later in a way that's very like, oh, we were of the second non, but they were of the fourth or fifth, and that yeah. made them trash. Yeah, higher non is better. I think this is the first time that the term is used is in this chapter. Okay. But I mean, I like, think I, so. I think we hear in Kaladin's flashback that his family was, like, second non. Yeah. So... Even he wasn't the poorest of the poor. Uh, no. Well, he, he doesn't give off that attitude of, of being a lower caste person, per se. He's... Yeah, he has an upper class name, and he has, like, an upper class education. And yet he is not a light eyes. Yeah. I He's... do have to admit, when I first read Non, it just made me think of bread. And so then I was like, mmm, sexy, sexy, racism, bread casts. I did just have Non bread. It's good. Nice. I love yeah. Non. Uh, so Shalon almost gets scammed, but Yalb helps her scam them back. She Yalb almost is a get... good boy. Sorry, she almost gets scammed by a man who's doing the masculine art of handling the money, which I pulled out because... So, so wait, so the men aren't allowed to read, but they are allowed to handle the money. Yeah. Uh, uh, that sounds like a logistical nightmare for trying to, like, bookkeep. Uh, they talk about how men, they're not going to sit down and read a book, but, like, a well-educated man knows how to read glyphs, okay. which isn't how, like, a novel would be written. It wouldn't be written in glyph pairs, but a well-educated man would know how to read, like, the sign on a shop or something, or the okay. header in a ledger. Okay, so it's almost, yeah. They know Understood. picture words. Got it. It is an interesting power twist that men don't read. It's considered, like, emasculating to read. Which is so fascinating, because the written word has been a way to restrict people from learning. Yeah. And by people, it tends to be women in society. I don't know, I just found that very fascinating. It's definitely different in this world. Uh, All of the academics are women, except for the, uh, the ardents. Priest dudes. Yeah. So, Shalon comes back to the library with a bunch of her own books, because she isn't rich enough to get into the library, but she has enough to buy her own books. So she essentially rents out the alcove right next to Yasna's and just starts studying. And Yasna is so impressed, is like, and that student's name was Albert Einstein. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then everyone clapped when yeah. Shalon came in with her books. And um, Yasna is essentially impressed by Shalon's drive and her earnest... Uh, desire to be an academic which isn't what shallan would have wanted to be the reason because she's just trying to be a thief but because she carries around a notebook of her sketches that she does of natural phenomenon just for fun yasna's like this is a academic at heart i'll take you on take on me take, take on me. me on. and that's the end of shallan for this section she is now a good good student and she's gone from this book for at least, like, 200 pages. Yep. She's a student on her way to becoming a thief. Nice. So now we get a couple Kaladin chapters. Yeah. 
I will say your little comments last time about the openings to every chapter making sense to you, making sense to you because you have read these books. I'm like starting to claw my way there and stuff about, I mean, some of them are really obvious like this one with the yeah, 10 that... people with the shard blades of light. <laughs> but like, yeah, I wonder what it could mean. But like, I'm starting to feel that. It gets there. Little by little. So we skip in this chapter. Kaladin has been a bridgeman for a couple weeks. And at this point, everyone who was on his bridge crew when he started has died, except for one other person. Uh, because being a bridgeman is a high fatality job. Uh, so much so that uh, we get some notes about Kaladin not bothering to learn the other bridgemen's names. Because no. they would probably just be dead the next day. Yeah, and I had a question, probably doesn't matter, but uh, Kaladin mentions that the, like, learning names would be useful because then you could talk to somebody in Damnation and how there's eternal fire. Is that, like, a religious thing in this world that has basis in reality, or is this just, like, their hell is our hell? I mean, um, we got some more stuff about uh, Voran theology later on, like, Essentially, damnation is their version of hell. Their version of heaven is called um, the something halls. Yeah, the tranquil halls. Yeah, and there's so, like I mean, an eternal war. It's not like this is something that they know for a fact exists and that they've seen. It's they talk about damnation the same way we talk about hell. Okay, I just didn't know because some stuff in their world that is just a matter of fact for their culture is clearly like based in the events that happened in the history of their world. So I didn't know if they were referring to, like, the desolations or something are the same thing as... Damnation is not, um, uh, what's the place the Dark One lives? Sheolgul. Yeah. Damnation is not Sheolgul. It's not, like, a physical place that people know exists. Understood. Um, so Kaladin is getting increasingly depressed and thinks about how the one way out for Bridgman is to visit a really deep chasm, and throw yourself into it. Yeah. Uh, Kaladin depressed lol. That's uh, this chapter, essentially. Kaladin does some internal monologuing about how this war doesn't make any sense. Like, just logistically why it's happening and why they're doing it the way they're doing. Mm -hmm. Says that they don't seem to care about pushing inward and assaulting the Parshendi. They just fight pitched battles on plateaus and then come back to camps and come back to the camps and celebrate. Why? And... This is, I'm going to have a couple beats in here that I'm just going to start calling, like, Sando structure. Okay. Uh, as in, the structure of Brandon Sanderson. Um, Sando loves doing this thing where he'll establish that characters are acting seemingly irrationally, but then have that be the basis of a world-building revelation later on. Okay. And we see in later in this section that the Alethi have pretty strongly lost their way. Yeah. No, I I was just going to say, yeah, the thing that you are talking about is something I was specifically going to mention in this chapter. I just mm -hmm. didn't know that it was like a codified thing that he did. I mean, so I don't know, know about codified. It's just something that I'm bringing up that I'm going to codify. Okay. There's a couple things I'm going to refer to as Sando structure. Okay. Um, but yeah, we learn later on that Alethi culture is pretty warped. And this war has essentially turned into like a game with a leaderboard. Yeah. And they're not really trying to fulfill a vengeance pact anymore. They're just trying to get rich. 
Wow, it's almost as if that's just what war is. Hmm. Profiting off the suffering of those stuck in the middle. So Kaladin gets so up in his head that Syl says that, I can't watch you be like this. I gotta go. She's like, I'm out, skis. I'll catch you on the flip side. You didn't used to be like this. This literally... I might might lose myself leaving, but I must. You're not the man I didn't marry. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, and now... Kaladin is extra double super depressed because he doesn't have his spirit friend. Oh no, he's double depressed. <laughs> You're feeling bad. Have you heard about double depression? But he 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 doesn't go to the um, suicide peak un- until um, after because Syl leaves and then she comes back to him when he's at the depression ledge, right? Yeah, the honor chasm. Yeah, with, with the with the magical poison leaf. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, essentially, Syl leaves, and then a couple days later, he gets to the point where he's willing to throw himself down a cavern and die. But we'll get to that in a couple chapters. Because in between these chapters, we get a flashback. And I'll just say that these flashbacks are probably my least favorite part of the book. Definitely deals a blow to the pacing. Like, this stuff is moving along pretty well. But we're going to get a lot of flashback chapters that feel a little unnecessary and drag a little. And this is kind of one of them. Yeah, I... So, at this point, I have read, like, three or four of these flashback chapters. Mm -hmm. And they certainly feel like they could have maybe been one longer flashback chapter that was just... Like, if you're gonna have to throw this much exposition, please just make it one god-awful chapter instead of four slow chapters i mean um in this book the chapters are actually pretty short (laughs) like you don't often get a chapter that's like even 20 pages long Mm. probably was just trying to stay away from like super long flashbacks but instead we just get flashbacks peppered in that sort of kill the pacing a little yeah um it's not like it's not like they're bad it's just not like oh i want to know what's going to happen and then you get this I want to know what's going to happen seven years ago. Um, I mean, there are bits where what happened seven years ago is like actual new information that might as well be a plot development, but we'll get there. So, so in this flashback, Kaladin is a young spry little child who is the apprentice to his father, who is a surgeon. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Should have just been a surgeon, Cal. He had to be a cool soldier, though. Seems like some indoctrination. I think you highlighted something about this conversation that Kaladin and his father have about, like, the heralds and the radiance. Yeah, less so as, like, something interesting and more just, this is the only time that I've found where somebody broke down. Like, so the heralds were the people with the ten shard blades that we saw in the prologue to the entire series. Yes who decided to defect and leave one of them behind to eternally experience torture in exchange for the freedom of the other nine. Mm -hmm. But people don't know that. People don't know that. I now know, having read farther forward, that the Radiants lived at the same time as the Heralds. Yes. Which wasn't necessarily clear before that those two things were contemporary. The Herald, the Radiance is essentially a group founded by the Heralds. Yeah, the Radiance are like normal people. The Heralds seem more like gods. 
So the Radiants are normal people who had shard plate and shard blades and clearly had some level of magic beyond what people nowadays have in addition to those two things. And then once the Heralds were gone, they either fell all at once or just slowly became corrupted. And then they betrayed people. Betrayed in the sense that, like, they betrayed their charge to protect humanity, not in the sense that, like, there was a literal coup. The Heralds essentially declare that the Desolations are done and that humanity is won and then disappear. And then the Radiants stick around for, like, a couple hundred years. And then there's an event that they'll call the Recreants that we'll get more details on later, where what we get described as Radiants turning on, turning their backs on humanity. Okay. And, yeah, I have read a later part where Dalinar talks about, he, like, has one of the storm visions that shows that Radiance and Heralds existed at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or, at least I assume so, because there's, yeah, it has to be, because he's meeting Radiance, and the Radiance are talking about desolations that are to happen in the future. Yes. So... During this chapter, there's sort of a surgery happening in the background, and then Kaladin talks to his father about his desire to become a soldier, and Kaladin's father makes the absolute statement that you can't protect by killing, and this is another one of these Sando structure things I'm going to point out, that a character will state an absolute, and then that absolute ideal will be iterated on and interrogated as a character progresses. So you can sort of think of this as like, the starting block for Kaladin's character is like, what does, so you'll always be able to think about Kaladin in terms of what does he think about this statement right now? Yeah. I hadn't thought of it like that, but now that you're saying it, I can definitely see the transformation as time goes on. So this is going to be sort of a touchstone for Kaladin's story is what does Kaladin think about the statement? You can't protect by killing right now. So, okay. That's another one of these, uh, Sando structure things that I've been feeling out. So, with that chapter done, we move on to chapter 11, Droplets. Yeah, gonna go ahead and throw out, don't know what the start of this, like the quote at the beginning of this chapter means, but it seems like some pretty crazy stuff. That's, uh, that's deep Cosmere lore right there. Yeah, I was gonna say, it seems to me like a bunch of these are, like, Cosmere level as opposed to Stormlight level. This particular one is very Cosmere level. Yeah. So in this chapter, Kaladin is now triple super depressed, and he has decided that he is going to go to the Honor Chasm and kill himself. Sick. And Gaz is like, fine, believe your stuff. I don't want to have to like send somebody and get your stuff once you're dead. That's uh, something to note. That'll be important. That uh, one of the chores that bridgemen need to do is to go down into the, into the chasms and fish out corpses and take all of the stuff that might be useful and bring it back to the army. Yeah, that's super crazy that the answer isn't, oh, well, then we lose your stuff. It's then we have to send people down to get it. I mean, it's not just people killing themselves. It's anyone who dies in a battle that like falls down a chasm will eventually get washed down this system of canyons. That makes sense. So you'll have Parshendi corpses and human corpses and Bridgman corpses, and they'll probably all have something that you want to take. Interesting. What's your race, Bridgman? 
essentially. I mean, this section would like you to think of Bridgman as like lower than human because they essentially are. So Kaladin is essentially a, a takes the step which would kill him, but then Syl shows back up and she is carrying a dark green poison leaf and she thinks that before he lost that leaf in the first couple chapters, he was all fine. But after he lost the leaf, he got really depressed. So bringing back this leaf to him will probably help. And in a way it does. Oh, How nice. Yeah, it's... The Sprinkles learning how to human. Yeah, she also talks later about how not being like the other... My uh, suspicion that there's something going on continues to... The, the phrase, like, be supported implies that there's the possibility that it isn't supported. Like, there's literally nothing pointing to her not being a windspren and having something else going on, besides the fact that he keeps calling her a windspren. But, like, mm-hmm. literally nothing else matches, and every new piece of information we get is like, oh, she's clearly not one. There's something else. Well, we'll have to see. I guess so. So, essentially... Uh, Syl gives the second philosophical touchstone for Kaladin's story arc. Essentially, that Kaladin thinks of all these people that he failed to save as people that he effectively killed, but he's being dumb and Syl has to remind him that they would have died more quickly without you, uh, and that his their gratitude for him helping them, even if it didn't save them, drew her to him. Interesting. Gratitude spread. Hmm. The plot <laughs> thickens. So assen- essentially she's saying that even these people that you think of yourself as having failed to help, you did help. And these bridgemen are so low that nothing you could do could hurt them. You can only help them. So what's one more try? And essentially that's what Kaladin is working off of for going into this next section of the book is just this line, one more try. Wow. And we got to it in 11 chapters instead of 12 books. How nice. (laughs) Is that what Rand gets to at the end? We'll see. We'll see. So Kaladin comes back, he threatens Gaz, and essentially bribes him into becoming the new bridge leader. I mean, it's not like bridge leaders actually meant anything for bridge for, but Cal's like, I'm going to make it into something. Well, the only thing that it means is that you have a smaller chance of dying during bridge runs. Like, usually being bridge leader, all that means is that you have, like, the primo spot in the bridge, but Kaladin wants to take that spot and actually make it, like, mean something. So Kaladin returns to the barracks, and he starts asking people what their names are. What a hero. So I want to just bring out this little section. Get some rest, Kaladin said, releasing Tef's hand. We're going to have a hard day tomorrow. How do you know? Teft asked, rubbing his bearded chin. Because we're bridgemen, Kaladin said, standing. Every day is hard. Teft hesitated, then smiled faintly. Kellick knows that's true. Kaladin left him, moving down the line of huddled figures. He visited each man, prodding or threatening, until the man gave his name. They each resisted. It was as if their names were the last things they owned, and wouldn't be given up cheaply. Though they seemed surprised, perhaps encouraged, that someone cared to ask. Ah, it's so good. Yeah. Like, this actually makes me feel things. Yeah. I don't have anything to say, except that sometimes it's really good. <laughs> good job, Jesse. It was good. Good job, Jesse. Good job, Brando Sando, for doing <laughs> this thing, which Jesse noticed. Branderson Alexanderson. 
I mean, that's literally where his name comes from. There you go. I know the deep lore. So with that, Kaladin resolves to protect them. And that's the end of part one. So now we move into some interludes. God, they're the worst. They're different. Yeah. Maybe I mean, it's just a me as a reader thing, but interludes always seem like something that benefits the author more so than the reader, as if the author had all these ideas that needed to be given life, but they didn't really fit with everything else. So now it's an interlude, and it, it will contain information that matters. It just doesn't really matter to the reader at the point where the interlude mm. exists. So that's where I was going to talk about it as a contrast to something like... It happens much more so in Worm than in Ward, and I am not going to talk about Pact or Twig right now. But in those stories, the in Worm much more than Ward, uh, the interludes serve as, like, not just, I wanted to give you this piece of exposition, but I can't give it to one of the main characters, so I have to give it to you this way. And much more like, it is important that you see this... So that something a character does later makes sense. Right. But like, it's relevant right now. Or like, it's relevant within the chapter. It's either relevant in the chapter that's happening, or it's relevant in the next chapter. Whereas these have things that I feel pretty confident are certain... Feel pretty confident are going to be relevant, like, four books from now... In the Cosmere sense of not just Stormlight, but, like, you read the Stormlight books, and then you read Warbreaker, and then you read, like, his graphic novels, and, like, somewhere in there, these interludes are relevant. Um, I will say, I'm not, like, super attached to these interludes. The most I can say for them is that at least they're not, like, 50 pages long. No, they are pretty quick. Like, altogether, they're maybe 50 pages long. The app that I'm reading on makes it weird, but, like... Individually, they're not that bad. Uh, on mine, there are a total of 15 pages. There you go. So, like, even if you think, like, it's weird because I remember on my first read them seeming a lot longer than they actually are. I think it is because they just sort of tank the pacing. I Nothing. skimmed them very hard. Yeah, I mean, each of them is like one single plot point. Yeah, like, I, I would pretty much say that, like, at least... God, I don't even remember the second one that I have a note on. But this first one with Ishik, like, I think you could probably have just flashed me this paragraph that I have highlighted and said, this is relevant later. And I'd be like, cool, good to know. Yeah. Bye. So, like, there's a lot of world building about this region called the Pure Lake that is pretty much just set dressing for the fact that this clear laker named Ishik is being paid to find an outlander named Hoyd. Yeah. By a bunch of guys that have strange accents. Wait, is the guy's name Hoyd? The person that he's being paid to look for is named Hoyd. Interesting. So that's like the only thing to really keep track of from this, is that someone named Hoyd is being tracked. Good to know. And then the second interlude is Nanbalat, uh, Shalon's older brother. That's who it was. This chapter paints him pretty psychopathically, and I don't really remember him being this crazy later on. I'm not sure if the level of psychopathicness is what Brandon Sanderson was actually aiming for. Yeah, because I definitely read it as like, this guy's crazy. He like tortures animals or something? Yeah. And like, literally the first line is, Nonbalat liked killing things. Not people, never people, but animals, those he could kill. Yeah, he, like, kills animals and hypes Bren show up. So, I mean, 
It's pretty clear that that's supposed to be like front and center, but I don't really know why he would want it to be front and center, just based on what I know about his character later, but I guess we'll get to it. Um, we get a mention of a device called a span read that essentially is just a Fabriel where one pen is connected to another pen, and if you turn it on, the pen, the other pen, no matter where it is, will mimic the movement of the pen that you're using. Hmm. So Super it's essentially spy pen. So it's essentially email. Sick. I love magic email. The axe sound does not sound like a dog. I yeah. was very disappointed. Woof woof. It's like a it's like a crustacean dog. With with antenna and yeah. chinks of skin flesh armor. Yeah. It is not just a dog. It made me sad. <laughs> yeah. This interlude is very, very short. And it ends on Nonbalat getting some news from his brother that is a pretty big problem, apparently. This is a little annoying, where you get something that's like, how large of a problem? Pretty big, I'd say. Come on, let me show you, essentially. And then you don't get to see what it is. Yeah, it's the same problem that happens, again, in Worman Ward, where it's like, there's literally no reason that the character wouldn't think it or say it. Uh-huh. Like, this only exists so that we can have tension. Yeah. And I mean, there's no way you're going to be thinking about this, like, for long. No. I literally didn't remember who this character was, despite having his name highlighted in my app. And then the third and last interlude of this section is another Zeth chapter. He has... He's so zesty. What? I said he's so zesty. He's lost a lot of his zest in this chapter. Seth is sad. Yeah. Zeth is five years later. Zad? He's Zad. But he's not a Zaddy. <laughs> Whoa. Only that priest is Zaddy. <laughs> so essentially, Zeth is now owned by a total deadbeat that just uses him to impress schmucks in bars. Yeah, this guy sucks. I hate him. Yeah, good thing he dies. Thank um, God. But Zeth is actually pretty chill with this. Zeth gloried in being wasted. Each day he was made to clean or dig instead of kill was a victory. So essentially, he's just not telling anyone that he's a shard bearer who could kill literally anyone you told him to. And he's just sort of a glorified parchment. Yeah, he's, like, not just a shard bearer. He's got, like, some Crazy power. magic. Yeah, crazy magic once in 500 years. Like you said, could kill anyone you wanted. So he's just letting people use him as, like, a house servant. But he says that anyone who uses him as a house servant eventually sort of realizes that there's more to him than that and don't like it. So they get rid of him. Amazing. Essentially, he says this happened because as he was leaving the assassination, the Parshendi that had his oath stone just threw it away. And we learn here that Zeth has to obey anyone who holds a certain rock. Interesting. He did mention, like, basically worshipping rock before. Yeah, but this is a very specific rock. It's his oath stone. Interesting. Uh, it's is is it basically the 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 physical manifestation of his soul? Is is that what it is? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe, maybe religiously. I don't know. Cosmere, Cosmere, Cosmere. So Zeth's master gets got in a street mugging, and the robber picks up Zeth's oath stone. And he says, "I'm required to tell you." that you are holding my oath stone. So long as you possess it, you are my master. Um, says, I must obey you in all things, though I will not follow an order to kill myself. Um, 
So he's not saying exactly what the Oathstone is or why that means someone's his master, but he seems to mean it. Yeah. He's super hyped about not having, although now he might have to. Who knows? I can't wait to find out more about Zesty. I really didn't think we would ever hear about him again from his perspective. Really? Yeah, I felt pretty confident that the next time Zesty showed up, it would be like, oh god, who's that dude? And I mean, we would also... infer from an outside perspective that it was Zesty. We get little bits of Zesty perspective going forward. Just a little sprinkle of spice. Some new sprinkles. A sprinkle of zest? A sprinkle of zest. This um, book is becoming more incomprehensible. We're adding capitalized words to it. Starting with this section, the chapter headers are no longer pre-death statements. They are excerpts from a letter. Yeah. From it, one apparently immortal person to another. Yeah. Uh, there's some pretty wild stuff in some of these later ones. I won't talk about them until we get there, because I think they'll be in the next section. But yeah, some At of the these are some pretty crazy things. At the end of this section, I could pretty reasonably see us reading them all together as one letter and seeing what we think it means. Oh, that's a good idea. That is a good idea. So at the end of this section, we'll come back and read all of these at once. Okay. They're pretty good. There's some good stuff in there. Yeah, because I will just say, so this first one, I'm of course making these notes like as I read them with no level of going back later and editing or adding notes on old things. So, like, the first one is, it mentions, as you are now essentially immortal, blah, blah, blah. My note just says, excuse me? And then there's a bunch of question marks. Like, sometimes the scale of a story changes so wildly. Like, obviously, I know that this is Cosmere, and it's got, like, a whole cinematic universe situation going on mm -hmm. but like the scale so wildly changes when it's now a letter from an immortal to someone who is now that you're essentially immortal it's like yeah. what yeah we're not dealing with immortal de demigods yet no so having one just writing a letter to another is crazy i like it this particular one is actually pretty iconic in the fan base this particular opener oh okay so Chapter 12 is called Unity, and essentially, there's a lot of characters to introduce in this chapter. Like, a lot. I didn't care about any of them. That's too bad. They continue to be point-of-view characters, at least through where I am in chapter 22. I suppose I'll have to go back and reread and care about I mean, I can text you a very short chart. Most okay. of them suck. Yeah, that's why I wasn't really interested in them, and I was like, ew, why am I reading this? Some of them suck less. Ew. So first we get King Elokar, who is the son of the king that we saw get assassinated. And sucks. he's super duper pompous and kind of a weakling. Sucks, but sucks less. And his right-hand man is High Prince Sedeus, who's also even pompouser, but sucks. not so much of a weakling. Yeah, definitely sucks. So that's sucks and sucks more is Elokar and Sedeus. Um, but wow, we that's a much harsher view than I was going to give them. But essentially, we get that assessment from the point of view of Adolin, who is Dalinar's son, because yeah. that's effectively how he sees them. He has a uncontrollable hatred for Sedeus. Immediate tier list: Sedeus is F tier, <laughs> Elokar D tier, maybe C tier. Depending on the day. Adeline, he's B, maybe A tier, still have yet to settle on something. Uh, Dalinar, definitely A tier. Uh, 
I love you both equally, Adolin and not Adolin. <laughs> not Adolin yep. is S plus 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 tier. You'll have to read and see. Renarin is like question mark tier. He is the most mis- His power level's just question marks. He is the most mysterious boy. So essentially, we get really quick introductions to Elokar, Sedeus, Dalinar, Adolin, and Renarin. Renarin? Renarin. I mean, if you're going to pronounce it Adolin, then it's just complete anarchy. You pronounce his name however you want. I was just thinking of him as Lanolin when I was reading. That's not even close. Lanolin and his boys. <laughs> what? Nobody's name is Lanolin. Adolin just made me think of Lanolin because I didn't care. So I was like, you're now Lanolin. Okay. Wait, like Lan and Wheel of Time? No, like Lanolin, like the stuff produced by Sheep. Yo, what if Dalinar and Lan hung out? That'd be sick. They're both so honorable. I can't wait to write this crossover. So essentially we got a lot of just like little details. Um, Adolin talks a lot in his point of view narration about how sick it is to wear shard plate. Um, and he points out that his father is the only shard bearer who has slate gray unadorned armor. Everyone else uses it as a fashion statement. Dalinar uses it as, like, a tool. Yeah, uh, I had a question. So, shard plate. Because yes. when I'm thinking about it, it's definitely, uh, like, 40k space marine armor? Yes, it's power armor. Okay. But I, sorry, I should clarify. Not, like... Kind of like that. I mean, literally just 40k space marine armor. It With, like, fantasy aesthetic and not, like, jetpacks or something, but... <laughs> I should I mean, be on a picture. Oh, wait, it looks awful. <laughs> like, 40k space marines have, like, jetpacks and stuff. This, That's like, true. looks like a suit of armor, but it's power armor. Understood. Chunky it's magic power boys. Power. It's magic power armor. We get a lot of talk in this section about how you can leap long distances. Like, it doesn't weigh you down, it just makes you stronger. Yeah, that you have to be careful to not, like, destroy things that you touch. Yeah, so we get a lot of details about what it's like to wear shard plate in these couple chapters, because it's pretty central. Is there a description at some point, like a super clear, of what it looks like? Would that be back in the prologue? Um... I mean, every, each person's shard plate looks different. Uh, I Sorry, let me clarify. Because later on, they mentioned the amount of lighting that a suit of shard plate has mm -hmm. looked different when the Radiance wore it. So, Well, yes. That is another thing that we'll get to. Okay. Do uh, shard plates conf conform to whatever wearer picks it up, or does the wearer have to conform to the shard plate? So, shard plates essentially are powered by infused gemstones and you can put them on without the infused gemstones and then as soon as you power it up it will like conform to you cool do they have to be refilled by leaving them out in a storm essentially okay i mean you don't have to leave out the shard plate you can just swap out the gems oh understood comes of a rusting pile of armor accumulating the storm yeah like well, if you if you have a set of damaged shard plate you can swap out the gems and it will, like, regenerate. Okay. Yeah, because they mentioned that the plate itself also regenerates, which yeah. I guess is what you're talking about. It regenerates by feeding on Stormlight. Okay. Got um, it. So we also got mention of a special breed of horse called Rash Rashadium Stallions. They're super horses. They're not good two rivers stock. 
but... No, they are literally horses with human intelligence. Yeah. That's terrifying. (laughs) I mean, like, horses are already, like, huge and powerful, but they've been crippled by anxiety. Now have (laughs) that anxious, terrifying power beast with the ability to, like, catastrophe. Wow. Catastrophize? Catastrophize like a human might? That's just a power of powerful anxiety muscle beast. Luckily, all the ones we see are the best. We also get mention that Dalinar has recently been racked by visions that make him hesitant to fully participate in the war. And Adolin is sort of pissed off about it. Yeah, weird stuff happens during the storms. Thinking emoji. I still don't know what this means. I'm like adding another piece of string to my corkboard. Good. Which is, I can't stress enough, maybe like one section of the book away from becoming a physical corkboard on my wall. Do it. You should do it and then we'll put it on Twitter and then maybe people will pay attention to us. They'll pay attention to me. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Do it. Anyways, so halfway into this chapter, we switch perspective from Adolin to Dalinar. Dalinar is obsessing about some stuff that he heard from a vision, specifically the line, unite them. He doesn't know what it means, but he's got to unite someone. He's got to find them and then unite them. Elokar continues to be a spoiled child, even though he's 27 years old. Which, again, based on your previous comment, 27 is... Like, more like 30-ish. Yeah. That's extra disappointing. He's a man-child. Disgusting. Privileged. Entitled. (laughs) So, during this plate-powered foot race, we get some mention of something called the capital T Thrill of Battle... Yeah, they mentioned this later. I don't know. I don't know what this means. It means something. We'll get to it. Just... Are there adrenaline spren? Like fight based spren? Maybe. Besides the hype spren? Besides the hype spren, you know? Speaking of which, Dalinar lets Elokar beat him in a beat him in a race, and Elokar gets so hyped that he gets hype spren. And oh my god, he's so pathetic. Yeah. Uh, like, I beat you, old man. <laughs> you almost overpowered me, weakling. Yeah, he sucks. So essentially, Elokar is super boisterous and confident while he's out in the field in a sharp plate, but is terrified of someone coming and stabbing him in the night. Because he's a trash baby. Well, no, because his dad got stabbed in the night. Yeah, but even his dad put up a fight, at least. His dad put up a pretty solid fight. It was only because his opponent was so zesty that he just couldn't do anything. Yeah, you would not need such a zesty assassin to kill Elokar. No. What if Elokar just went to sleep wearing a shard arm? You mean like Dalinar? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. He's not that cool. Yeah, so we get the full quote of the thing that's ringing in Dalinar's head this whole time. You must unite them. You must prepare. Build of your people a fortress of strength and peace, a wall to resist the winds. Cease squabbling and unite. The Everstorm comes. And he's very shooketh by this. I don't know what that means, but it's big spooks. The Everstorm. Yeah. As foretold. Yeah. These these places are rocked by like every couple weeks a storm comes through. But what if it was what if it was all the time? Oh. Wow. Oh. That's uh Unfortunate. That seems like a bad time. I thought the Everstorm was a little more metaphorical, but sometimes it's just the Earth deciding that you don't get to be alive anymore. I probably shouldn't have said that, but whatever. It's fine. It's okay. 
I was entertained because the, the the cat meowing steadily increased as you talked, and I was like, the Everstorm. She approaches. The Everstorm approaches. <laughs> oh, load, she coming. It's just a big cat. So then we switch back to Adolin's perspective, just to reinforce how crazy Dalinar seems to people, and how out of place he is among this, like, image-obsessed Alethi nobility. Yeah, all these people are trash, except Dalinar. We already went through the tier list. Um, so Dalinar essentially tells his son that he's figured out that what he has to do is convince all of the Alethi nobles that the war is done and they just need to leave the Shattered Plains. Yeah, uh, I will go ahead and say all of the Alethi nobles that aren't Sedeus are below Sedeus. So, like, consider that. Well, what do you mean below? As in, like, even lower on the tier list? Yeah, yeah, Sedeus is gets to be promoted to F tier because at least he believes that Elokar shouldn't die because he's the king. Everybody else is beneath that. We'll have to get some more details on how they feel. Adolin, the nobles. Anarchy. Yes, please. Dethrone God. <laughs> um, God is Adolin, dead. Adolin is horrified to hear this because Adolin still has some stock placed in standard Alethi values. He's a bit of a sheep boy. Yeah, that's why he's sometimes only beat here. So as they're arguing, Adolin sees someone coming up who's named Wit. He's essentially hey. a court jester. Hey! He does the same kind of being witty that uh, Shalon does sometimes. Usually he's better, but sometimes he does that. And it's like, oh, Wit, what a guy. Bjorn, I thought I heard a sigh. No, I think it was a yawn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, court court jesters are fascinating because they had to be intelligent enough to know how to counsel, but also how to phrase it in a way that wouldn't get them murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, Brandon Sanderson definitely was trying to sort of invoke some Shakespearean court jester characters with this character, like specifically mm. like King Lear. So we'll King get to Lear why he's a sad important. Man. With a very important jester. So Wit makes fun of Ren- Renarin for a while, even though Renarin is so timid he can't fight back. He's, don't ever talk to me or my not Adeline son ever again. He needs to be protected. At the end of this chapter, I forgot to even mention why all these characters are out here on the Shattered Plains. They're here on a ceremonial hunting party to kill a massive chasm fiend. Yeah, which is apparently, which is also revealed as what the war is. Kind of. So, we'll get more details about how the war's objectives have morphed over time. But yes, right now, most battles are fought over pupating chasm fiends to get the gems inside of them. But at the end of this chapter, the chasm fiend they're hunting emerges early, smashes one of their permanent bridges, and kills a bunch of nobles. And also is way bigger than they thought it would be. Yes. So it's essentially an, oh shit, let's go to the next chapter. So the next chapter is chapter 13 called 10 Heartbeats, which is how long it takes to summon a shard blade. Which is crazy. Like, the, so I, I highlighted this. The fact that it's not, they measure the length of time that it takes to summon a shard blade as being 10 heartbeats. No, it's literally, it takes 10 heartbeats no matter how fast your heart is beating. It literally is your heart beats 10 times and then your shard blade is out is insane. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah, I like it a lot. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, because 10 heartbeats can be a while. 
yeah, it's I just, like if you're super I, calm, that takes forever. But like in the middle of a fight, your sword is just out. I just measured my pulse and it took a second. Wow. I think that's about what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be about 60 beats a minute. Uh, and I'm super out of shape. I can barely feel my pulse. You should be able to feel it more, but you're emaciated. Oops. So essentially this uh, this chapter is just one big old action scene of Elokar being a total man-child who can't do anything right. Uh, he can charge against the orders of the more experienced officer. He does right. that really well. So essentially Dalinar... Dalinar and Adolin are competently doing the Monster Hunter thing. Yeah, uh, literally how you take down a monster in Monster Hunter for big damage. <laughs> yeah, but Elokar tries to do some sick stunts, but during all of this, his saddle on his horse snaps mysteriously. Huh. Hmm. Still a plot point I'm dealing with eight chapters from now. Yeah, they talk about this later, a lot. But yeah, there's not a ton to talk about here, besides that it's a fight that happens. Renarin tries to get involved, even though he has neither shard, plate, shard blade or training, or the physical ability to have a, like, raised heart rate. Yeah, he, like, physically cannot fight. He's too frail. He still tries. He's a good boy. Uh, Is he? He's, he's yeah. a mysterious boy. He's a good, mysterious boy. Uh, one thing I will say is I did like the description they give of they invented a bow that is so big you cannot fire it without shard plate. It's a way for sort of like, because Sadeus has shard plate but not a shard blade. Yeah. So it's sort of a way for him to participate in battle in a heightened way. And they say that um, the uh, great bows require Fabriel technology not to just like shatter under the pr the strain of how much power it has. Yeah, I just thought it was a really cool note that somebody went and figured that out. Brandon Sanderson thought it out. We get a lot of little Fabriel things here. We talk about Fabriels that hold these great bows together. We, they say that they just invented, like, refrigerator Fabriels. Yeah. Refrigerator Sprens. Oh, no. Technically, it's refrigerator gems. Whoa. Gem uh, Sprens. Cold Spren? Frost Spren. Ooh. Some frosty <laughs> wine. So essentially this battle continues until Dalinar saves Elokar's life by doing the most badass thing imaginable by catching a descending chasm fiend claw with his hands. Yeah. So essentially what this is supposed to demonstrate is that while pretty much everyone has lost respect for Dalinar because he's not like a ruthless aristocrat, he still has like, he still, he still got it when he needs to. Yeah, he is good at the thing that he does. It's just that the balance of how much people care about that versus them caring about him being spineless, basically. Yeah. He's bad at being a sycophant, which is what's important to them right now. But he is good at being sick. <laughs> He's such a sicko. He's the Blackthorn. Yeah. Spoilers for a few chapters from now. Like, they bring up again the balance shifting because he did the cool thing and then it immediately shifts back to oh but he's not a sycophant what a loser yeah it takes like one chapter <laughs> he doesn't know how to navigate alethi society which is sort of ironic because his brother pretty much created alethi society so yeah elokar gets the killing blow gifted to him by dalinar and gets more glory gets more hype spread thank you and he sucks yeah, he's descending in tears the more that you talk about him. 
he really sucks. So that's the end of that chapter. And then we move on to the last chapter in our reading for this section. It's chapter 14 called Payday. Not the heist. It's just a payday. I get it. Huh. <laughs> that's a video game. So essentially this chapter just details the beginning of Kaladin's attempts to motivate his group of bridgemen. Yeah. Trying to initiate a paradigm shift. Which yeah. he doesn't succeed at, really. He gets the first step, which... One of my pet peeves with some stories is spontaneous displays of collective emotion, which luckily Brandon Sanderson knows needs to be earned and have nuance, so people don't just, like, suddenly become inspired by Kaladin. It's, it takes some work, and people have different feelings about what he's trying to do, and it takes, like, a whole book to get there. At the same time, I will say there is some amount of frustration spread coming off of me from later on, like, the amount of times that Kaladin has to go so far out of his way that it's, like, almost absurd for the benefit of the other people on his bridge, and then as soon as they're not the ones directly benefiting, they're like, ah, who would help that guy? Well, they're just supposed to be, like, completely defeated. I guess. Like, the lowest of the low. Which is why it's, like, we get a lot of talk here about how it's Kaladin's normal drill sergeant routine won't work on them because they're not afraid of him punishing them. Yeah, like, there's no punishment that he can give them because he's not allowed to, I mean, not that he would kill them, but, like, the yeah. only thing that he could do would be to kill them. And even then, yeah. Like, the job that they have is what is usually given to people as punishment. Punishment that is code for execution so essentially he tries to get his bridgemen to stay in shape and stay motivated but all of them essentially say you're not my dad you're not my real dad and go back to bed which hashtag save so after threatening gaz some more uh kaladin comes back and decides that if he can't force them to train with him he will just be an example and train in front of them. And he picks up some bridge pieces and just does some running training. Run, Forrest. Run. Rude. <laughs> and essentially, this is not something a bridgeman would ever, ever do. So he draws a lot of attention. He's like choosing to expend more energy, which is a thing that we only do in modern society. And generally not when... You're being threatened with death. Yeah. So he's essentially, he's breaking the mold. He's trying to induce a paradigm shift, as Bion said. What a guy. Uh, so after all of that, Kaladin has another discussion with Syl, where she talks about how much she's learning and changing. She says, today I know what death is. And she's so excited. Also she kind of freaked. So... Yeah. <laughs> And she knows that she's not like the others anymore. Strange times for Syl. Weird and wild freaking times. Is what Syl is doing possible for all Spren or just her type of Spren? We'll find out. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I know because I got the, the spoils I talked about. But even then, I don't actually know. No, I just know that I'm right. So those have been our chapters. This isn't like a perfect place to leave off, but we would have to go a lot further to get to like an actually good stopping point. And I'm trying yeah. to keep these page counts kind of even. So how are we feeling at this point? Tyler, you said that you sort of had a, like your opinions have lightened up. 
Complete 180. He is so excited now as opposed to being so anti. Yeah, I feel like last section, I like I feel more and more confident that it was very much a, like, the story that he wanted to tell was chapter 7 onwards, but you can't tell that story without starting us at the beginning. So mm-hmm. it was very much a, like, I just have to establish this and then we can actually get to the story. It's just that the foreword doesn't say that. So, mm-hmm. like... But looking back on it, yeah, that is definitely a much rougher section, and now being um, even more chapters ahead, uh, the book is much better. Bjorn? I like this more of Wheel of Time, which is, I know, a big surprise. I didn't really like the new characters we were introduced to. They kind of suck. But I'm glad that Kaladin's getting better, and I want all the world for Syl. <laughs> She's a cutie. She gets even better. She, like, starts floating on Kaladin's shoulder with her hands on her hips, very angry at people. She's essentially Tinkerbell. Yeah. I like it. Except Tinkerbell, who can talk. But yeah, she's just a sassy wind spread. So, I'm glad we're getting to the point where it's picking up a little. As I said, the beginning of this book is notoriously herky-jerky, and we're pretty much past the worst of it. Yeah. So now we just get to see the actual story happen. Which I'm very excited about. As mentioned, the cork board is not out of the question. It's happening. We're doing it live. It might happen. You should actually do it. Wait, I don't know. I'd be entertained. It would have to go on that wall. There's so much space for a cork board. It'd be a really petty thing for my parents, too, if they ever came in and saw it. And they'd be like, what are you doing? Shouldn't you be moving out? We'd be like, yeah, but I gotta connect more string on this board, though. Gotta. I just gotta. Gotta connect the strings. So, those have been our chapters for today. I haven't planned ahead, so I don't know how far we're reading for next time. I'll have to let you know. If you're interested in hearing more from us whenever things come out or anything needs to be announced, we have a Twitter, at Wheel Reading. And if you leave a review on iTunes, it helps people find us. And we love hearing from anyone who listens to the podcast. If you have any feedback, we love to hear it. Um, So this has been The Third Wheel. I really don't want to have to change the name of this podcast, even when we're not doing The the Wheel of Time. So this is The Third Wheel. Well, we're still Third Wheel. You know, we're all third wheeling on each other in our own ways. There are three wheels here. There are three wheels inside you. You are a (laughs) podcast. I am the I'm the wheel you feed, Jesse. I'm the wheel you don't feed, Tyler. And I'm the thirdest wheel of all, Bion. And we appreciate you. And your live yes. forever is here. <laughs> that's that's a deep cut right there. That's Bye a, everyone. That's an off-screen cut. Bye. Bye. Bye.